Turn your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Be in the, the end of the chapter this morning, Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28. You know, the, the gospel message is quite simple. Around here, we think about and just articulate it in four simple words. God, man, Jesus' response is a very easy way to remember the simplicity and the clarity of the gospel that, that God is the holy, eternally existent, one true God who created all things and therefore reigns as the holy Lord of all creation. He created man in his image. Man rebelled against him, sinned, and because of man's original sin, we are all born sinners and we all choose to sin and are separated from God, deserving of just death and damnation and punishment at the hands of a holy, holy God. But God, knowing this, sent forth his one son, Jesus, his only begotten son. He sent him, the word became flesh, took on, it took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins as our substitute. The sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. He was buried and three days later he rose from the grave. And the great hope of the gospel, the great promise of the gospel is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That all who confess their mouth that Jesus is Lord, all who believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That our hope is in Christ in life and death, our hope is in Christ our Lord. The gospel is very simple. The call to respond to it is quite simple. Repent and believe is what the call to respond is. It's not do these things. It's not check off this list. It's not be this person so you can merit God's favor. The call to respond is simply to repent, to turn from your sins, and to trust Christ is Lord. Repent and believe. But what does that entail? What exactly does that mean? What does that, that call then to follow, repenting and believe, what does that entail? That's what we look at today. I want to just pray as we look at the word this morning. Ask God's blessing on this passage because I believe it is a weighty passage for us to hear. Let's pray together. God, we commit this time to you. I pray, God, that you would grant us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to submit and follow you all of our days. God, would you speak through your word? We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, let's read this passage Today, Acts, or Acts, Matthew, wrong book, Matthew 16, 24 to 28. The word of the Lord says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What I want to do today, just kind of somewhat as a roadmap for where we're going, is I want, to, I want us just to walk through the passage and kind of do somewhat of an overview of the passage and look at some of the key points, key truths, key statements that, that Christ gives us in this passage. And then after we do that, I think there's two primary truths or primary points that we really need to kind of grapple with and consider today. Those two points, we look at and we kind of backtrack or look at the passage and consider what it it has for us is one is the, the call and cost of discipleship. So that'll be the, the first thing we'll look at. And then the second thing we'll look at is the vanity of the world and the value of the soul. The vanity of the world and the value of the soul. So, so we'll come back to those kind of two key points. But let's just look at the passage just for a moment and, and consider what it, it has, what it means, what it, what it says to us this morning. Jesus begins in verse 24. A telling his disciples, and mind you, this is right after verses 21 to 23, where he had just said that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die, he will raise on the third day, right? And, and he, he speaks those, that rebuke of, of Peter when Peter looks to him and says, no, 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 this will never happen, and he rebukes Peter in that moment, right? And so now, after this, this exchange... We have Jesus telling his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me. Now, why does Christ clarify this in this passage, do you believe? Why is it that, that he comes and he says, listen, Peter, you've confessed this great confession of faith. I've told you where I'm headed and that that is my resolve. I'm resolved to carry out the plan and the purpose of God. And now I'm telling you, if anyone would come after me, this is what must occur. This is what it must look like. If anyone, anyone would come after me. But why does he do that? I think one reason I would say is that, that we have a tendency to misunderstand what it means to, to be a Christian. We have this tendency to think things like, well, I, I, I would like to be a Christian, so I'm going I'm to go to church more. I, I think I may want to be a Christian. I'm going to start giving an offering. I'll give something to the church. Or, you know, I, I think I, I, might, I might like this Christianity thing, so, so I need to just be a, a better person. But what Christ is going to clarify in this passage is that while all of those may flow out of being a Christian, none of them make us a Christian. None of them make us a Christian. They all flow out of it. If we are following Christ, we're pursuing Christ, we will be invested in the life and the ministry of the church, the furtherance of the gospel. We will indeed gather to worship Him. We will gather for fellowship. We will come to be around other believers and Christ will sanctify us. We will grow in him. We will pursue personal holiness. All of those things will flow out of it. But here, Christ presents what it means to be a Christian, what it means to respond to the gospel and to follow him. What does it entail? And so the first thing he says, he says, if anyone, if anyone would do this. Now, this gives a, a universal application. It instantly says, he, he's talking to his disciples here in verse 24, but he says, if anyone so this isn't just for those 12 men, but it gives universal application to all 
men. This is not just for serious disciples. It's not just for those who are going to pursue a seminary education. It's not not just for those who are going to move to the other side of the world to follow him and to be a missionary. No, this is for anyone who sets to follow Christ. Anyone. It doesn't matter your status. Every man, every woman, every child who desires to commit their life to Christ, this is what it looks like. It doesn't matter your social standing. It doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter the depth and the weight and the embarrassment of any sin that you bring to the table. It doesn't matter how you can talk or not talk about uh, Christianity. It doesn't matter your financial standing. None of that matters. If anyone desires to be a Christian, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And there is an importance to that word would. That idea of desiring, of wanting, of longing for. Because that word would, it says if anyone would come after me, that that word is to means to just set his will to, to resolve to, to long to. He's speaking of those who would will to, resolve to, choose to follow Christ. If you would resolve to be a Christian, this is what it looks like. And the reason that's important is because we don't just kind of accidentally fall into being a Christian because of where we were born or what family we're in or where we live. If you're here and you come thinking that, you know what, I'm a Christian just because of, of, well, my parents brought me to church, and it's just kind of what we did. We went to church. It's just what we do. And so I'm a Christian. Well, you're gravely mistaken. If you, if you have some other concept of what makes you a Christian because you just lived here and it's just kind of what people around do, then you're mistaken. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would resolve or decide to come after me, and come after me is not a chronological note. He's not talking about, you know what, in the the time span of history, anyone after me chronologically, now that would certainly be true, but it's more than that. It means to walk in behind, to come in behind and to follow him. So what he's saying, if anyone would desire to be a follower, anyone desires to be a disciple of mine, this is what it looks like. And he gives them three things. What are those three things that the would-be disciple must do? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow Christ. Deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow Christ. The three things that he gives. And he follows that in verse 25 to 26 with Three reasons. Three reasons indicated. If you just look in your, your English text there, three reasons indicated by the word for in each one, verse 25, 26, and 27. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will find it. That's the first reason. He says, listen, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Why? Because whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. Now, what does this mean? The the one who is seeking to save his life is the one who is seeking to just kind of live up all life has to offer here, to kind of live it up, so to speak, right? All this present life has to offer, pursuing complete worldliness, pursuing worldly goals without regard to the life to come. They're focused solely on this life, focused solely on kind of the the latest wave of the times and and what it means and what it looks like to to live your best life now and that type thing where it's just, I'm just right here, I'm just pulling everything in to preserve my life. And so the question is, are you so focused on preserving the life you have now that you are refusing to follow Christ, that you're neglecting him? And what Jesus says here in this first reason 
It's really a warning. It's a warning that in your effort to save your life, in your effort to hold on to all this life has to offer, you're going to lose your life. You're actually going to lose it. We're going to look at this a couple times, but I just want you this morning to consider and be mindful of the example of Paul. Do you, do you remember Paul? Some of you in here, you, you know the example of Paul. In, in Philippians 3, 7, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Then this is right after Paul had said, listen, I, I, was, I was the man. Like, I, I was the one. I had all of the, the pedigree. I had all the opportunity. I had done everything that I could do. Right? I was the, the, kind of the utmost of Jews. But he said, I, I can't as loss. I, I didn't pursue all that this life had to offer. Now, did Paul regret this? Did Paul then get to the end of his life and go, man, I wish I hadn't have given up all that? No. At the end of his life, Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul doesn't get to the end of his life and go, wow, this has been a rough one. Here I am and I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. I, I should have been more set on the things of the world. I should have been more set on this life and pursuing and accumulating and raising my status among my fellow Jews. He doesn't say that. Paul looks back and says, here I am, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and there is a crown of righteousness that my Lord is, has awaiting for me. Christ, or Paul has no regrets for following Christ. You see, to, to lose your life now, to lose your life now means to turn from your current life, turn it over to Christ, and to be granted eternal life, to gain eternal life. And so the question is, are you prepared to forfeit eternal life for the sake of pursuing all that this fleeting life has to offer? Are you willing to do that? The second reason he gives there is in verse 26. So the first one was, listen, if you're trying to save your life, you're trying to hold on to it, then you're actually, you're going to lose it, right? The second reason he says is, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Just a Basic question here. When you think about what you're gaining and losing, gaining and profiting, right? You think about the spreadsheet of life. Are you in the red or the black? And how do you determine that? Are you in the red or the black? When you consider the, if you, if you did an evaluation of the world as compared to your soul, if you took and considered all the world has to offer, and you consider the value of your soul, which would you find it most wise to forfeit? Which would you look and say, I am seeking to gain that at the expense of this? And whichever you answer, is it worth it? Is it worth it? We'll come to the, back to that in just a moment. The third reason he lists is in verse 27. Verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The third reason Jesus gives is, is he's saying to look onward, look in the future. You need to look at the end. You need to consider 
the day when you stand before your Maker. We need to consider the day in which we stand before the judgment seat of God. A day in which we will all give an account for how we responded to the gospel. A day in which we will all give an account for the way we lived. We will give a, or be met with a reckoning for the deeds that we've done. I mean, Jesus is clear here, right? The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in, glory of his, in the glory of His Father, and, when he, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Oh, but herein lies the beauty and the hope of the gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel that our sinful deeds are exchanged for Christ's righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, I would just remind you of that passage. Maybe you, you know this passage. For our sake, he, talking about the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. So that, why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange. Our sins for Christ's righteousness. This is what happens when we trust Christ. Our sins are given over to him. His righteousness given over to us, imputed to us, credited to us. That we are then in that glorious day. We are not repaid according to what we have done, but we are repaid, rewarded according to what Christ has done. That's the hope of the gospel. That my hope is not found in what I have done or what I might do what I can accomplish, but my hope is found in what Christ has done, in what He has done in living a righteous life, a perfect life. It is important that Christ lived a sinless life. Yes, His death is important, but if He does not live a sinless life, His death loses the value and the righteousness of Christ. That's the gospel. It's the hope we have in Christ. It's the third reason. Look and consider. Do you want to stand before the judgment seat of God? Do you want to stand before him in that moment and say, all right, here's what I have to show. Here's what I've done. Look, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Or do you want to stand before the judgment seat of God and say, all I can show and all I can put forth is the righteousness of Christ on which I stand and depend and lean and trust. Choose Christ. Choose Christ. Verse 28, Jesus concludes with this statement, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's a statement that we could probably jump into and dig around on, and you can read a lot of commentary on it and theology on it. The, the bottom line is, is it's a statement that we don't know exactly what Jesus is referring to here. Scholars debate. What is it he's referring to here? I'll just give you really quickly, I don't want to spend too much time here, but really quickly, some of the main options that he gives here is that, that Jesus is referring to the transfiguration in, in Matthew 17, 1 to 13. Uh, some say that is you know, right here, right after Matthew, and so he's pointing to the transfiguration. Some would say that Jesus is referring to the resurrection and ascension, right? That when he raises, rises from the grave and ascends to heaven, that that's what he's referring to, that some would see that and behold the glory. Some think that he's referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost, 
that in that moment, that's what he's referring to. And then others would say, you know, he's referring to the preaching and the growth and the expansion of the gospel and the early church. Still others would, would say that he's referring no, to later on events, such as the, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 or even to the end times. People just, there's all kinds of ideas. I I know a lot of people, a lot of scholars that would say uh, the transfiguration is it, and then the, the really those middle ones, the resurrection, ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the, the growth of the church, a lot in, in those four really kind of land in one of those areas. I, I would just say personally, just if you're curious, that, that I don't hold to a view that he's speaking of one event here, just me personally. I would say that, you know, when Jesus makes this statement, I would say personally that I think he's probably, instead of saying this is one particular event when this happens, me as an individual, I would say, you know, I think he's referring to the reality of, of a series of events, series of events that are initiated by his public ministry. When he comes on the scene, what does he declare? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. It has arrived. The kingdom of heaven is here. And it is initiated there. There it is then displayed in the transfiguration. It's displayed through his life and his ministry. It's displayed through his death, resurrection, and ascension. And it culminates in the sending of the Holy Spirit, the growth of the church, as we behold the glory of God and the kingdom of God in the rule of God in the hearts and lives of men. We behold that. And there were many There were some standing there that day who would behold and see that all occur. They would take part in it. They would see Christ's further life. They would see the transfiguration. They would see his death. They would see his resurrection. They would see him ascend. They would see the coming of the Holy Spirit and the expansion of the church. They would behold the glory of God in a very powerful and a special way. Now, as we just step back and look at this passage then, I just want us to focus on two, two key aspects of it. The, the first thing I want us to consider is the cost and the call of discipleship. The cost and the call of discipleship. Verse 24. The, the call is what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's the call. It's, it's not merely a call to just walk an aisle. It's not just a call to say, I don't want to go to hell. If I, I just said, who wants to go to heaven in here? All of us would raise our hands. And none of us would want to go to hell, right? So it's not a call just to say, I want to go to heaven. It's not a call just to join a church. It's not a call to start wearing Christian shirts or to listen to Christian music or to say a prayer. The call is very clear. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. That's the call to discipleship. Now, there is a cost. There's a cost to heeding this call. There's a cost. Bonhoeffer when he talks about this, he, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talks about it and he starts thinking about this whole idea of denying himself. The cost first is that you would deny yourself, that you would no longer live for self, but instead live for Christ. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, he said, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self, to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. 
that we simply would deny ourselves. Is life about to be hard? Yes, it is, but I'm going to pursue Christ because I'm not focused on how hard it is for me. I'm not focused on what it has for me. I'm focused on Christ. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to submit my will to him, my aspirations to him, my desires, my plans wholly to him. I'm going to deny myself. Now, this is radically countercultural in our day. Do you, do you hear how radical that is in our day? That you would be called to deny yourself. And that call is, is, is uttered and spoken to us. Deny yourself as we live in a day, in a society that is absolutely focused on the self. The whole focus of our culture is self. And yet Jesus looks and he says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Carl Truman in his book, um, The Strange New World, he writes about and, and explains and really uh, helps us to understand this whole idea of what he calls expressive individualism. The idea that the pinnacle of life that we're all striving for in our society and people think about is this idea of expressing myself, of this is who I am and I'm, I'm going to express it. And until you get to that point where you express yourself, you haven't made it yet. And you just need to keep on living that way. And we applaud that. When someone expresses themselves, that's the greatest thing. Oh, that's great. You be you. It's wonderful. We celebrate it. We rejoice in it. You've revealed your real self. Good for you. Christ says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. It's a call opposed to our day. Our day where the message is not deny yourself. The message is indulge yourself. The message is express yourself. The message is promote yourself. The message is protect yourself. But Christ says, no, 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 deny yourself. It's radically countercultural. Listen to the biblical response. Our culture says, yeah, this is all about self. It's all about you. You continue to indulge yourself, express yourself, promote yourself, protect yourself. How does Scripture answer that? What is the biblical call? The biblical call to indulge yourself in Galatians 5.16 is walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We are not to walk around just indulging ourselves and gratifying the desires of the flesh. The biblical response to expressing yourself is Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We're not just here to express ourselves and go, oh, here's who I am. I'm going to just express it. And it doesn't matter. No, we're called to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. That's what we're called to be conformed to. Not to just be this individual, hey, I'm going to express myself and I've reached this pinnacle. The response to the idea that you promote yourself and you create a platform and just promote yourself and advance yourself. It's all about promoting yourself. It would be John 3.30, the life of John the Baptist. What did he say there? He must increase and I must decrease. I'm not promoting myself. John the Baptist did not promote himself and said, hey, look at me. Look at me. No, he said, no, don't look at me. Look at him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.31 said, let the one who boasts not boast in self. Don't boast in what you've accomplished. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, Paul says. And then this whole idea of protect yourself. You don't think that is a very solid message in our day? 
How many of us make decisions completely focused on what's going to protect us? What's going to protect our name? What's going to protect us physically? Everything is about how can I protect myself and insulate myself? Everything. I just want to live in this, this bubble. Maybe I can just bubble wrap myself. I want the big bubbles, not the small ones, right? We want to bubble wrap ourselves, protect ourselves. But yet we see in Scripture something radically different. Christ says, deny yourself. Paul says, you know what? It's not protecting myself. Actually, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I lay it all down, so be it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is not worried about protecting himself. Paul's saying, listen, my physical body is wasting away. I limp, I hurt, I've got scars, I'm bleeding, I'm nursing this, this is infected, I've been beaten like you wouldn't believe. My body's just wasting away, but my inner being is not. It's being renewed day by day. And he says, listen, this light momentary affliction... Paul says this light momentary, it's just temporary. It's just temporary. I'm not set on protecting myself. This is just temporary. And it is actually serving to prepare me for what awaits. It's just preparing me. Deny yourself. Don't indulge yourself. Don't find the highest prize to be expressing yourself. Don't be so set on promoting yourself and protecting yourself that everything you do is gauged and determined by those two things. Christ says, deny yourself. Call to discipleship is costly. It's costly. Not only do we deny ourselves, but we take up our cross. We're to take it up. This is more than just kind of a bad lot in life. I, I was reminded of that this week and just, just reading and thinking about this that oh it's just a cross I bear like well it's just kind of that thorn in the flesh that I have it's just kind of a bad habit it's just kind of a bad lot in life I've been given Jesus says no you deny yourself and you take it up it's a command you take it up it's not just like oh man I can't do anything about it that's what I have no you Take up your cross. What does that mean? It means being willing and ready to die to your present way of life. It's a willingness to suffer for Christ. It's a willingness to bear shame for following Christ. It's a willingness to be rejected for Christ. It's a willingness to be mocked for the sake of Christ. Luke, in his parallel passage in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says that we are to take up our cross, the way he relates, take up your cross daily. We are to take it up. J.C. Ryle said this, he said, true Christianity brings with it a daily cross in this life. But, he also says, it offers us a crown of glory in the life to come. Paul understood that, didn't he? He totally understood it. True Christianity brings with it a daily cross in this life while it offers up a crown of glory in the life to come. This whole idea of taking up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross is kind of one of those things where it's okay as long as it does not apply to me. 
Taking up your cross sounds like a, a valiant thing as long as it doesn't mean me taking up my cross. As long as it doesn't me, mean me saying, you know what, I am going to live for Christ. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to be willing to take on the suffering, the rejection, the shame, the mockery to follow Christ. The cost. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. It's costly. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then he says this in the call. He says, follow me. Follow me. It means to just come in submission to Christ, to live as he lives. Now, an interesting thing here, and we don't really capture it well. You read your text. says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's a, there's a linguistic shift here. Deny himself and take up his cross. They're written in a way in the Greek, this, like, this one-time this decisive action. A decisive moment in which we deny ourselves. We, we stop. It expresses this kind of specific decisive action. But then when you get to follow me, it's, it's written differently. That word is a command. There are all three commands, but this is, this is now a command that expresses continuous action. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and continually, continually follow me all your days. Walk in obedience to me. Continue in following me. That's the call of discipleship. It's the call to those who would say, I resolve to follow Christ. And deny myself, take up my cross, and I'm going to follow him all the days of my life. The cost is denying yourself and taking up the cross. The call is to follow Christ to the end. The call and the cost of discipleship. The other thing I want us to consider and think about this morning is the vanity of the world and the value of the soul. The vanity of the world and the value of the soul. We see this in, verses, in verse 26. I want you to, to hear this. Thomas Watson, he preached a sermon on this called The Preciousness of the Soul. And in that sermon, he made this statement. He said, every man does carry a treasure about him a divine soul, and that this jewel should not be undervalued, our Savior here sets a price upon it. He lays the soul in balance with the whole world. And being put in the scales, the soul weighs heaviest. The soul weighs heaviest. Our, our problem is that we do not often set the scales with the soul. Instead, what we often do is we have the scales, right? You have the picture, you know what scales are, right? Okay? And we set in one side all the things of the world, and it weighs it down. All the things we love, all the things we like, all the things we want to achieve, all the things that people say, this is what you should acquire. This is what you should achieve. This is what gives value and meaning to your life. And then we go about life, living just like that. 
And we value all those things and, and we determine to live in that way. And so the things we do, the things we invest in, the things we invest our time, our, our resources in, the, the things we work towards are all focused right here. They're all focused on the things that the world has defined as valuable and weighty that we've put in the scales of life. And we never set the soul in the scales. We never consider the value of the soul. Watson, in his sermon, what he says is, listen, Christ sets the value. And Christ reminds us, lest we fail to miss it, of the immense and tremendous value of your soul. And when the soul is weighted against the things of the world, when the soul is put in the scales, it's not this, it's not this, it's this. The soul is absolutely weightier than all of the world. There is nothing as valuable as your soul. What is the value of the soul? Just consider this. Christ made it, he bought it, he died for it. Christ did. Nothing other than the blood of Christ could purchase the soul of man. All the the resources in the world, none of it could purchase the soul of man. 1 Peter, Peter writes in 1, 18 and 19, he says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold. You weren't bought with silver and gold. There was no money. There was no treasure that could be worth that. No. You were ransomed, he says, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was the blood of Christ. That's the value of your soul, the very Son of God. Watson again says, God must die that the soul may live. The heir of heaven was mortgaged and laid to pawn for the soul of man. You hear that? The heir of heaven, not A-I-R, but H-E-I-R, the heir of heaven was mortgaged and laid to pawn for the soul of man. Oh, the value of the soul. Do you think little of the value of your soul and much of the things of the world? I mean, just consider the soul. The soul is that which Satan is seeking to destroy. He could care less what your background is. He could care less what your education is, what your, what your financial standing is. He could care less anything about you, what your abilities are, what you're good at, what you're bad at. He could care less. He wants to destroy your soul. And as long as he destroys your soul, it doesn't matter. If he wants to destroy, if your soul's destroyed by drugs and alcoholism, great, fine be it. If it's destroyed by materialism and, and just rampant accumulation of things, then great, fine, who cares? We just want your soul to be destroyed, is the goal of Satan. But Christ died to redeem it. Christ, the blood of Christ, was ransomed for your soul. It's precious. It's the soul that distinguishes us, distinguishes us from all of creation. Jesus told us in, in Matthew 10, 28, what did he say? He said, don't fear the one who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and soul. The soul is of utmost value. And so Jesus asked a question that we need to ask and we need to listen, we need to wrestle with this morning. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What's it going to profit you? Unbeliever. 
What's the profit? You get all the stuff you want. You accomplish everything you desire. But yet you forfeit your soul. Was it worth it? Believer. Is it worth it? You're a believer. Live your life for Christ. At least it looks like it. And get caught up in all these things. Gain the whole world for your kids. What's the value of their soul? Would we be those who would gain the world and forfeit the souls of our children? The next generation? My fear is that too many in our day are captivated by the world at the expense of the soul. Believers and unbelievers. As a believer, I can't lose my salvation. Jesus teaches that. New Testament teaches that. We would hold to that. But I could certainly get so distracted and wrapped up in the things of the world that it would be detrimental to the souls of my children, to the next generation, to those around me. What would it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Paul, again, I said we would look at him. Paul understood that. Somewhere here, Paul, in chapter 3 of Philippians, he said, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, <laughs> but, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, listen, all that I gained, all of the world's standards that I gained, I counted as loss. Loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's exactly what we talked about a few minutes ago. Are you depending on your righteousness or the righteousness that comes from God through faith? And Paul says, listen, I count it as all is rubbish. All that stuff is just rubbish in view of Christ. But yet somehow we, we're missing that in our day. Oh, the scales are tipped the weight of the world. Oh, it's valued. And we fail, we fail to value the soul. Where do we see this? We see this in this whole rise of what they say, the rise of the nuns. This is not a bunch of flying nuns. You guys watched the flying nun as a kid? It's not the rise of the flying nuns. It's the rise of the N-O-N-E-S the rise of the nuns, those who would say, what is your religious background? They would say, I don't have one. I don't have a religious background. I don't have any religion. None. 
That's the rise of the nuns. This increase from 2007 to 2021, those Americans who would say, I have no religion, rose from 16% to 29%. And if you want something that is even more enlightening to that and helps you understand more, 40%, 40% of 18 to 29-year-olds claim none, while 20% of those over 65 do. You want to hear a call? Older adults, senior adults, to pass on your faith to the generation, the next generation? That's it. Look at our generations. Look at Gen Z and the things they're falling after, the things they're running after, their views on, on everything from, from sexual identity to, to, to just everything, life, the meaning of life, the value. Just look at it. Look at the disparity between the, the older generations and the younger generation. There is a great disparity that's alarming. It's alarming. Why would that happen? Could it be adults that we've gotten so caught up in the world and gaining the world that we're forfeiting the souls of the next generation? Could that be? How could we do this? How could we do this? I'll give you five ways we're doing it, I think. Five ways. One is I think this is happening when we think about education. I think it's absolutely happening. We think about education. We're showing a lack of discernment and wisdom in the education that we're putting our children under. We're just ignorantly just throwing them in situations and not even worried about what they're learning. And they're putting, in, putting them in situations where what they're being taught is more about an agenda and philosophies and worldviews than it is about the content of the education you would think they would receive. But yet, we have these kids that were, oh yeah, we took them to church and now we're just going to send them off to this university. Have you seen the news the last couple weeks? We're just going to throw them out there. Oh, I don't know why my kid is living the way they are now. I don't know why that's happening. I don't know why they're thinking. I don't know why they're... We need to be discerning. We need to think about this. We need to prepare them and equip them and continue to walk alongside them and disciple them and encourage them through that. I know that not every kid is going to go to this little Christian bubble, and I don't know that we even should do that. There's schools that, and, and careers and stuff that demand you go to different schools. I get that. I understand it, but we can't do so ignorantly. We can't do so at, at the, the, the expense of the soul of our children. We can't be so caught up in, well, I want my kid to go to this institution so they have this degree and this diploma because it looks good in the world while their soul is roasted. Here's the second area. Sports. Sports. How quick are we to place our kids on travel teams and spend untold hours and money to give them athletic experiences. All at the sake of gathering with God's people. How, how quick are we to do that? All the while saying, hey, God's people and the things of God are of primary importance, except for in this season. How quickly can that happen? What message does that send? We want to afford them every opportunity in dreams of them being 
a professional. Many in here today can tell you how difficult that is. We have people sitting in here today who have gone very high athletically or have had kids that have achieved great things athletically. The question is, does that come at the risk, the detriment, and the forfeit of the soul of your kids? What about work? A third thing. Work. That we would be so set on, again, the accumulation of stuff or rising the corporate ladder and the good life that we spend more time, energy, and resources pursuing that than we do pursuing Christ. That everything we do is, is haunting our skill and platforming ourselves and promoting ourselves to, to reach it, to get it, to get there. And all the while, we don't pursue Christ and we forfeit our very own soul. Or our kids see that all they're pursuing is work and work and work and success and they're, they're living it out. They're, they're achieving it. They never talk to me about Christ. They never sit down and share of what Christ is doing in their lives. Would you gain everything in the realm of work and forfeit your soul? Or what about sexual sin? I think it's another area in our our world where we're just totally refusing to admit the reality that there are times and there are people perhaps sitting here that are so engrossed in some sort of sexual sin and pornography or whatever it might be that they're forfeiting their own souls at the sake of fleeting, sinful, temporary pleasure. Are you forfeiting your soul because you're so caught up in images, videos, gross immorality? Or what about appearance? What about physical appearance? Would you forfeit your soul for the sake of physical appearance? That you would invest everything Go to all lengths to look good. Take on an extra job to get that done. All for how you look. Devote hours and hours and hours of exercise and, and, and working out and all these things, but you can't devote any time to coming before the Lord in prayer and, and reading and study of the Word or gathering with His people. You look beautiful, incredible, chiseled on the outside. And the soul is rotting and decrepit, wasting away. My guess is that I just stepped on some toes. The reality is my own toes don't feel so great. Do you, do, you, do you think we go through these five things, and I say these five things without any level of understanding of what you're going through? Listen, I, I will just tell you that I want my kids to grow, and I want them to pursue ex- educational excellence. I want to put them in a position to succeed. I want to see them grow in everything that God has gifted them with intellectually. I want them to be educated. I, I want to see them excel in sports. I mean, yesterday, we, we spent the day in two different states because of sports and pursuing championships in two different areas. And I enjoyed that. I screamed my lungs out. I ran across a cross-country course. 
just to see it happen? Were you devoted time and energy to soccer, to running, and other sports? I enjoy them. I work hard. My wife works hard. I want to earn a paycheck. I run. I run a lot. I run too much, I've been told. And I want to be in good shape. I have goals. I want to take care of myself. But I am going to tell you, I am not going to pursue any of that. And my home is not going to pursue any of that at the sake of the souls of my kids. I'm not going to. And I want to call you to do the same. I want to call you to resolve to say we are not going to pursue the ways of the world at the expense of the souls of our kids. We're just not going to. We're going to make hard decisions at times. We're going to make hard decisions that may make us different. We're going to make hard decisions that are going to be sacrifices. Because I'm not going to crucify the soul of my kid at the altar of work or sports or education or sexual sin or how I look. I'm going to pursue Christ. And I'm going to live for His glory. And I'm going to disciple my kids and raise them up. And I'm going to help them to pursue educational excellence. And I want to help them to pursue sports accomplishment and excellence. And I want to help them to be hard workers. And I want them to take care of themselves. And I want them to walk in holiness. I want them to glorify God every step of the way. It's hard. It's hard. I just want you to know as your pastor, it is hard and I get it and I understand, but we must step into the difficulty and we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him for his glory. We cannot accumulate and acquire and so go after the world that we forfeit our very own soul or the souls of the next generation. We can't do it and it's happening. We have to rise above that. We have to pursue Christ. Christ's words here were weighty. The day he spoke these words, they were weighty. The disciples knew exactly what he was saying. They understood. They may not have understood what it was going to look like for him to take up his cross at that time, but they understood when he said, take up your cross, what it meant. They were weighty and they were hard words. And I believe that they are just as weighty and they are just as hard for us today. And I believe they demand serious consideration and evaluation from us. They demand a response. You, you realize that every time we read Scripture, every time, we always respond to it. You can submit to it. You can embrace it. You can reject it. You can rebel against it. You're never unresponsive. So, I would just challenge you, encourage you, call you to respond today. To this passage by examining your own life. Maybe you're here, you're, you're an unbeliever. I would call you to respond by denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ. Would you turn to Him today? Would you trust Him? Would you give up your life that He might grant you eternal life? Trust Christ. And the second way I would call you to respond is that if you have lost sight, maybe you're here, you've lost sight of the value of your own soul or even the soul of your children, you realize, man, I've gotten so captivated by these things that inherently they're not evil and bad. 
I don't think work or education or sports or taking care of yourself, I don't think those things are inherently bad or evil. But when we get so engrossed in them and wrapped up in them that we forfeit our soul or the souls of our kids, that is problematic. Would you examine your life and consider, consider today, are you gaining the world and forfeiting your soul or the soul's of those coming behind you. Pursue godliness. Walk in holiness. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow Christ. Let's walk in a manner worthy of Christ. As his people. Let's pray. Father, I give thanks today for just the time this week personally in which God, you reminded me of the value of our souls. God, I pray that you would strengthen and help me and the other pastors here to shepherd the people at Grace Baptist Church faithfully, lovingly, in sincerity and truth, knowing the value of souls. God, we are those who will give an account for that. So God, would you strengthen us to do that? And God, I pray for friends gathered here today, God, who, God, they've never considered the value of their soul. God, would you please open their eyes to that, that gaining the world at the expense of their soul is detrimental that in seeking to gain and to maintain and to hold on to life, they're forfeiting their life. God, would you open their eyes? God, would you bring a great work of faith and salvation in their lives that they would deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow you? God, please, please do a work of salvation in their lives. And God, I pray for brothers and sisters here today who are standing with me. I thank you for them, those who are making difficult decisions and pursuing you through the midst of navigating difficult times. Times in which we're called to indulge and express and protect and promote ourselves. Times in which we're so tempted to gain and live for the world. God, would you set our gaze upon you and upon the value of our souls and the souls of our kids and the next generation, those around us. God, let us not miss that. And let us live instead for your glory, leveraging every opportunity, every instance, every skill, every blessing from you for your glory and for the advance of the gospel. Would you please, God, by your grace, strengthen us to do that. And we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.